0: Welcome to episode 18 of Super Entertainment Presents The Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Geek Gignol Network Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein Hosted by the TVCU crew uh, Joining me from Studio B is James Boyachuk CEO of 18th Wall Productions and lover of tea And from Studio C, Chris Nigro Author and founder of Wild Hunt Press and lover of cheesy puns And I am Robert Ironski Jr. Author of the horror crossover encyclopedia and lover of canned peas And we are the TVCU crew Sorry, a little silly there, but uh, Ivan's not with us, who is, of course, our lover of cheese (laughs) Uh, because he had a work commitment in in the real world um, as opposed to our fictional world here. So I had to give him a little tribute. Um, The TVC crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the Television Crossover Universe. So welcome, Chris and James.
1: Great to Happy be here meeting. again.
0: All right. Uh, so uh, last week we started with James, so uh, this week we'll start with Chris. Uh, do you have anything you need to plug or any announcements or any revelations, epiphanies?
1: Um, I have a prediction that we'll have an awesome teen superhero team in the 31st century. But other than that, <laughs> I'm kind of slow on the run today. Last week I gave... Every plug I made then still stands, so re-listen. <laughs> All
0: right. He's plugging the last week's show. <laughs> and James, how about you?
2: Um, just a few days after this episode comes out, the fourth in our series of Sherlock holmes is going to release. This time we have John Lidwood's Grants, A Study in Grey. This is one of the ones I've been most excited for since the beginning. In fact, John was one of the few authors I actually went to ahead of time and got on my knees and begged for a story. Because he's responsible for the last Edwardian series, which is basically a series that takes the idea, Thomas Carnacki is dead. What do we do now? And the two main characters, even though they don't feature in this tale quite so much as some of the others, are his version of Carnacki's Watson, which is very different from many of the other takes on him, and Abigail Jessup, the herefore two secret female member of Carnacki's Dinner Parties. And they're a really enjoyable pair. This story in particular, however, deals with the occult undertones spinning out of one of Sherlock Holmes' old cases. And set against this to try and solve the mystery is one of the two men in England's secret occult division. A group vision that, unlike usual, where they're the super-funded, super-secret, really powerful organizations... It's two guys in an office that's basically a broom closet, and no one takes them seriously. So it's just delightful in so many ways. I really recommend it, and I think everyone listening would love it. And because I tried to offset my shameless plug with a shameful plug that has nothing to do with me, I'm also going to recommend that you check out Gallifrey. I've made no secret Mm. that my three favorite companions on Doctor Who are Ace, Romana 2, and Leela. And if you tell me Leela's in something, I'm going to want to buy it. If you tell me Ramana in something, I'm definitely going to want to buy it. And if you tell me Ace is in something, I've already bought it. So Gallifrey is basically an HBO-esque presidential drama. Imagine if The West Wing was produced on HBO. Except it deals with Gallifrey after all of these different characters have come to it. Like we see Leela, Mary, Andred end up on Gallifrey. Romana 2 has ended up as president, lady president of Gallifrey and Ace is one of their agents and it's this extremely well written extremely fascinating audio series. It's one of my favorite things I've found this year. It's simply amazing and you owe it to yourself to go to bigfinish.com and snap up every single season. That's all I've got.
0: I, I, I saw your Facebook post where you're saying like your favorite Doctor Who episodes are mostly not from the show (laughs) and they're from the audio dramas
2: it's stunning how good a job big finish does with what they've been trusted with
0: yeah yeah. they could have
2: just settled but they're doing some amazing stuff there
0: nice um so i'm just gonna do shame full plugs um for other people um So I was recently really sick for like a month because the weather kept changing. And so I binge watched a bunch of stuff. Um, If you haven't watched Daredevil season two or Daredevil at all, uh, you really need to watch it. Um, That's me. Yeah. um, So uh, I'm not going to go into spoilers, but I will say for a very dark and violent show, it goes the opposite route of of what Batman v Superman is doing and in, in showing that may, may, maybe uh, maybe going around killing isn't necessarily the right way to be a hero um, and it does that by bringing on the Punisher um, so you would think, oh it's going to be like yeah killing's great but it, but it it doesn't take that route um, and it's really really impressive for a dark and violent show um, to have actually an optimistic um, message. Uh, Plus, it has, like, so many Easter eggs, more so than previously. Um, I've noticed that the show ends now with the ABC Studios um, affiliation, um, which is probably why they're using um, stronger connections now to the ABC show. So now... They are have uh, able to connect better to the ABC shows as well as the movies, and their, um, you know, and their um, their references to um, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe are, are 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 not as vague as they were before, where they were just saying the Green Guy and the flag waver. <laughs> yeah. Now, now they're okay,
2: really random question that might be a spoiler, so you can plead the fifth. Okay. But do they confirm the joke that directors had that it was the Punisher driving that truck in winter soldier?
0: Uh, no, they do not answer that question. Okay, yeah. yeah,
1: but Jerry Hogarth crosses over G-
0: Jerry Hogarth.
1: maybe From that's s- Jessica Jones.
0: Oh yeah, yeah yeah. your friend yeah, um, i I will say um Roxanne Corporation. Um, which which is uh, played a big part in some of the Marvel movies and on Agent Carter um, and on Agents of Shield plays a big part in Daredevil, so um, that's okay. like a really big link um, to to tie the shows together. Uh, the same evil oil company, uh, which is really impressive. Um, the other thing that I've been watching um, is eleven twenty two sixty three on Hulu. Which is an which releases only one episode per week, um, so you can't binge binge watch it unless you just save it all up. Um, but it, it's it's one of the best written um, Stephen King adaptations, uh, and it has its own Easter eggs in it, um, and it, and um, it's really excellent um, despite. Um, um, What's his face? Um,
2: James Franco?
0: Yeah, despite James Franco, who has no acting ability whatsoever and just has the same stone look on his face all the time. His um,
1: mom I disagree with you about that.
0: What I'll say about James Franco is he's brilliant in picking really great scripts that are so that a project is so good despite him. Um, and, and because of that, he keeps getting work because the projects he are in are so good.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll say this for James Franco—he has a fantastic sense for the behind the scene business of Hollywood.
0: Yeah, and uh, so I—I I, I don't care for his acting, but I, yeah, I love almost everything he's at been in. Um, so, and and including this, it, it's really relevant. Well and um, you know, um, you know, if you're a time travel fan, um, it's really good. Really good, and if you're an era uh, era fan, if you love the '60s, it's a great show to watch too. They they really really worked hard to make sure it was historically accurate. Um, So so that so that's it for my um, plugs of other people's work. Um, And so we're gonna go to a commercial, and when we come back, we're gonna have Peter Rollick on the show. So we'll be. We hope
2: all of our audience doesn't go insane.
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so we'll be right back all right we are back our guest today is peter Rolick, author of such books as reanimators the weird company and the soon-to-be-released reanimatrix as well as an infinite number of published short stories of the horror and or weird fiction variety and editor of anthology legacy of the reanimator which helps explain why he's known as the lord of the reanimated he lives in florida with his wife and children sorry ladies um Peter was also also um, on the top of my wish list for people to write the foreword for the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. Unfortunately, somehow I couldn't connect to him until the book came out, and then all of a sudden we were like communicating all the time, which is. <laughs> but there is a volume two coming out, Peter. Um, so well, welcome, Peter, um, to our show. I'm glad to have yeah, you on. Good to be here. Um, so I, I wanted to first mention that Ivan Chbosky, um, is our other co-host couldn't be on tonight. He had a last-minute thing that called him away, and uh, he he really wanted to apologize because um, uh, each of us like had a list of like who we wanted on the show, and um, like his list only had you on it. <laughs> so he, like, and then he got called away when <laughs> when you come on.
3: Oh. Um, uh- but well, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll come on again sometime when he's around. That's great. Uh, so he did leave me uh, the first. The first three questions I have for you were actually his questions because um, he right. really wanted to make sure these got asked. Um, so the first one is: um, um, I know the story behind the animators and the Weird Company, but perhaps some of our listeners would like to know what drove you to write these books.
3: Well, um, the point. Okay, so. Reanimator comes out first and Weird Company comes out second. But the reality is that Weird Company was conceived of first. Um, um, I was, I was really thinking on this thing, um, and I only published one chapter of it. It was called A History of Miskatonic Valley. And the first chapter was published in Crypt of Cthulhu 104. And what I had done there is that I had pulled through my uh, collection of Lovecraftian fiction and teased out all these notes about timelines and whatnot, and was putting together essentially that, a a history of the Valley. And I wrote the first chapter, and I was working on the later chapter, and as I was compiling my notes, I realized that there was something interesting in the Lovecraft works in that three of his main characters were in or around Arkham at the same time. And this would be Asmus Waite, um, Randolph Carter as the, the Alien Witch of Galba, and uh, the unnamed narrator of uh, the Shadow of Innsmouth, who everybody agreed is called Holmsted. Um So I saw the potential there for exactly what we're talking about, a crossover. You've got three great characters ending up in, the, in town at the same time. It would be fun to see what would happen if they got together. And I, at this, at this time, was a big fan of um, Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And so the first thing that came to my mind, and I wrote it down on on, on the, the mirror in my bathroom in, in, in soap, uh, the League of Lovecraftian Gentlemen. mm mm-hmm. And so I started assembling my league, and I really wanted Herbert West to be part of this, this team. But his timeline did, didn't work. At the, he was dead or busy at the time, or both. Um, so I sat back and said, all right, I'll create my own version of the reanimator, and I stole the name Hartwell... Uh, Hartwell actually appears in Lovecraft fiction. He's um, doctor. Um, he's, he's a doctor in the uh, the Dunwich Horror, and I gave him a secret a secret background as a reanimator. When I started writing the Weird Company, and I realized I had I had no idea what this character's motivations were. He had he had very little backstory. So I decided I would sit down and I would write a story about him. And I wrote a story. And then I wrote a second story. And then I wrote a third story. And it just sort of snowballed. And then the next thing you know, I got the whole novel of what was then called Shadows Over, Over Arkham or Shadows Out of Arkham. And that eventually became Reanimators.
0: Cool.
3: So I, I go ahead.
0: No, I was just, say, just saying, cool. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. So the animator, gets, you know, I, I, I send it out, and I get three offers in a row. And we went with uh, Ross Lockhart at Nightshade Books. And um, as soon as that book came out, I, they were like, okay, what do you have that's next? And, well... By this time, I knew who Hartwell was, and I had The Weird Company finished, Um, and I was able to accomplish with The Weird Company what I had set out to do, which was two things. One, combine those three characters and more into one storyline, and two, bridge the gap between two of my favorite stories, At the Mountains of Madness, and... um, who goes there? By John W. Campbell, which was filmed as The Thing right. twice. Uh, and so, Weird Company not only is a crossover, but it's a, a bridging story between those two two classics of Lovecraftian fiction.
1: And what you really did in Reanimators, Peter, that I loved, is the idea. Of basically linking so many apparently disparate elements in the Lovecraft mythos and show well they're not really disparate there are connections between like Wilbur Wheatley and the things that happened in Dunwick and the family with with the uh, with the witch Kenzaya. Am I correct there? And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, there is a bit of a time loop
3: there. Um, Kenzaya is uh, the, the ancestors to a good number of uh the, the uh, families of uh, the uh, miskatonic Valley and it's kind of a subplot but it's it's one of the I don't know lurking festering horrors that I, I inserted into that book
1: and it does her backstory really gives people nightmares. I think you really really caught the idea of Lovecraft instead of more or less hitting people with gore porn, even though there's plenty of that for people who like it, it's what you don't really know about or what it implies to you that just creeps you out. Yeah, yeah, I,
3: you know, the problem I always have with Keziah and with any of these, you know, oh, there's a the witch in town, is that they don't always, they don't start out as witches. They're part of the community to begin with. It's only later after people figure things out that they start to shun, and then... Become objects of, of ridicule and or fear. At one point, they're part of the community, but then you have to you have to realize that they did something to get caught. And what did what did they do? So I played with that and and you know created Kazaya Mason and her three, her two sisters, which are also lifted from other uh, Lovecraftian fiction.
0: My second question from Ivan. Um, that he specifically wanted me to ask you was that that last section of The Weird Company sounded very familiar to him. Is it possible that he read a slightly different version of it in Horror for the Holidays? Uh,
3: actually, it's not a slightly different version. It's the exact version.
0: That's what he was wondering.
3: Yeah, it is It is exactly... Uh, it, um I grew up reading uh, analog, and asthma, fantasy, and science fiction, um, and back then writers wrote chapters of stories and sent them in. You know, they wrote novels, and those novels were serialized in these magazines, or over the course of years they wrote stories, and then later those stories were fixed up and became novels. Right. Uh, and both Reanimator. And uh, the Weird Company following that pattern. I published some of these stories or chapters beforehand, and then fixed them up into these novels. And um, it, it's a very—you get too, you get more bang for your buck that way. You get a double paycheck,
0: right? And that, that's what he wanted to know. He he wanted to know if um horror for the holidays if if that was written first and then became the Weird Company or or if it if it was. Specifically meant to be a, a clip from like did did one like transform into the other one or was the other one already um, created and this was just a snippet from it?
3: Um, yes and no. <laughs> I had always intended for whatever happened in uh, that story, that last story, to be part of the um, the weird company. Uh, there are. Three or four breakout chapters in the Weird Company that are, are, deal with um, Shagas or the old ones, uh, who I call the Krell, um, as a nod to uh, Forbidden Planet. Um, that stand alone and appear to be separate parts of, of without any real tie into the novel, but they really are are part of the book. Uh, and you' were always meant to be. Okay.
0: You've claimed to be very concerned with continuity, and uh, we all applaud you for that. Um, it really shows in your work. Other than Lovecraft himself, what mythos authors do you consider to be canonical for the purposes of your own stories?
3: Oh, well, so in doing this research, you know, and with the help of uh, Rick Lay, um, the whole... Uh, Derelith mythos thing. I published a, a timeline of that. So while I incorporated some Darlithian uh, fiction into uh, reanimators, I have to say that Derelith is not canonical. Mm. Um, it's a separate universe, and it, there are uh, several points that can be shown to be very different from Lovecraft. Uh, Derelith takes the position that Lovecraft was fictionalizing the truth and that derelict was writing the truth mm. so and he comes right out and says this in several of his, of his stories um, and it, it's kind of amusing that uh, in Daryl's fiction um, particularly I think the glow in the darkness Lovecraftian books, uh, books by Lovecraft published by House are mythos knowledge tones you can read them and essentially gain mythos knowledge. Um, kind of amusing, um, right? So, going back to the question, what's canonical? I, I think I, I'll, I'll accept uh, Ramsey Campbell as canonical. Um, I'd like to take some of Lumley, but Lumley spins it off into a very interesting direction. Essentially, create. Uh, creates his own world, his own version of the universe. Um, I like the works of Fred Chappelle, um, but they're not... There's not a lot of dates, and there's not a lot of material there. Um, oh, geez, Who else do I... I, I think it's canonical. Clark um, Ashton
1: Smith, maybe? Who's that? Clark Ashton Smith, maybe? Clark Ashton Smith, but... You know, and I, I'm sitting here
3: thinking... I, I was thinking about doing a Clark Cash and smith timeline. Um, it would just be very difficult to do because so much of his work is set in a period when there is no time. Or, or that's not yeah. uh, documented well. Um, it'd be easy to add in young, but Zafik and uh, hyperborean would be very difficult. Um but yeah, Clark Ashton and Smith, I, w- I would consider canonical. Frank Belknap, long. Uh, yes. Uh, some of... Pe- a lot of people don't like his work, but I find it enjoyable. I'm step over here and look at my bookshelf. Or at least one of them. Um,
2: How about Robert E. Howard? Uh,
3: yeah, I've incorporated Robert E. Howard, and I, w- I would live with Robert E. Howard as part of the canon. Um...
1: Well, Howard and Lovecraft were correspondents and friends, and they, they incorporated a lot of each other's work.
3: Yes, yes. Um, uh, Caitlin Kiernan. I would I would almost... I would put Caitlin into the top. I would make her stuff canon. It's, it's really good, and I think a lot of people overlook it. But I think she's got a, a really good... Uh, talent for incorporating disparate things and creating fabulous visions.
0: Now, or wh- how
1: about Lynn Carter? Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Go oh, on. go ahead. So, no, okay. go ahead. My question was I, going on a is, tangent.
1: I just asked him, what about Lynn Carter? Who's also is uh, seven- I like a lot of Lynn stuff. Um, it's a,
3: some of it's a little weak. Um, I, and the funny thing is, that I, in many ways, I think of myself as a replacement for Lynn Carter. Um because he, he, he was writing a particular kind of love acting fiction, um, and, I, and I think that it's what I miss most about what's being written these days, these sort of fun pastiches. And when I sit down and I, I try to write this stuff, it, I keep him in mind a lot. And, yeah, I do keep a lot of Lynn Carter stuff in, in The Mythos, Definitely.
0: One of the things that Ivan critiques me about um, in my work is that um, I I do what a lot of people do and just uh, presume that all of Lovecraft's work exists in the same universe, um, like automatically everything's Lovecraft mythos, you know. Um, and he critiques me that because because um, Lovecraft didn't necessarily connect do the do a lot of all those connections. Um, you know, he did have his Cthulhu mythos and stuff, but, you know, um, but they're not. Um, so, so I, I appreciate that you are actually creating the crossovers to validate, um, uh, making those, those, those connections between them. Um, are, are you one of those, uh, people who would say, no, it's not just all the Lovecraft mythos. There's different series in, in Lovecraft and, and, this is now how they all connect
3: well so i would say this i think everybody says cthulhu mythos you know and that's his his realm um i would say that if you reframe it as a Miskatonic valley mythos mm. um because Miskatonic appears first in herbert west Reanimator,
0: right
1: then all of a sudden a lot of things come together. I will that say... Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I will say one of the connections I like that you made, and I won't spoil it too far in Reanimators, was the connection, physiological connection, I should say, between Herbert West's reagent and the Deep Ones.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, and I have to... Um, Give a nod to a couple of different writers there, and oh God, his name is, is uh, escaping me at the moment. But there's this great story um, about a cannery in Innsmouth in modern times, in which somebody goes to inspect it, and they find out that they've just got deep ones hanging on hooks, and every so often they slice off flesh and then the flesh regrows. So they never actually have to go fishing anymore.
1: Huh. You don't want to have a deep one on your on your line anyway when you're going fishing.
3: No, but, you know, they just have these, these guys hanging up on giant meat hooks, and they keep them there, and, and they slice off muscle, and, you know, feed it into the cannery machinery. And since they're immortal and they can keep going...
1: It's a constant supply of food. Um, Leatherface's family would love to have that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually have a question for you. Um, more about about your opinion of, of Lovecraftian love adaptations than about your work specifically, um, but you are the expert. Um,
4: oh jeez. Well,
0: what do you think? Okay. What do you think about um, when when television shows? Uh, particularly cartoons like throw in uh, Lovecraftian references I'm sure you're not going to throw Billy and Mandy necessarily into your work (laughs) but
3: (laughs) no but you know it's not just Billy and Mandy or Ghostbusters or Buffy um, or even I guess there was a Supernatural episode as well which I haven't tracked down yet but like Ghostbusters did twice Uh, Billy and Mandy uh, um, but even um, one of my favorite writers, Bob Weinberg, one of the classic um, mid-century uh, pulp writers, he wrote a Catwoman story that's in, uh, I think the anthology is called The Ultimate Catwoman, something like that. And the opening of the um, the story is a poem by Justin Jeffrey. Robert E. Howard's
0: poem. Mm-hmm. Right.
3: And that is the only Lovecraftian reference in the whole story.
2: That's really fun.
3: So there's nothing else in that story. It's not a... It's It's not a... Uh, Eldric story. It's not a weird tale. It's just a, a straight Catwoman story. But it opens up with a piece of poetry by Justin Jeffrey.
0: I love that and, kind of stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of fun... But, you know, I have limited shelf space. Right. <laughs> you know, as, 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 as large as the collection is, and as large, you know, I, I keep buying bigger houses to house the collection. Um, I have to look at that and say, you know, it's not going to stay. It's just not important. Um, so it goes. Um when they do this on television series, I think it's just evidence that Lovecraft is becoming part of mainstream culture. And those are nice nods. Um, but it's hard to make them canonical. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, and this is, this is really hard for me. It's, it's when um, the Justice League is fighting Ixulu, which is a vague mm. Cthulhu reference it's hard to rectify those two universes. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cthulhu could exist in the DC universe, but the DC universe does not exist in Lovecraft. Right. Now, um, and I had this discussion with people about, you know, there's been several um, different Sherlock Holmes Cthulhu mythos crossovers. And I'm perfectly <laughs> happy bringing Cthulhu Holmes into the Lovecraft universe. But I'm not going to bring Cthulhu into Sherlock Holmes universe. Sherlock Holmes universe is purely logical, right? If x plus x plus b, x, one plus one must equal two. There's no room for what we're talking about, Lovecraft universe in Sherlock in Arthur Conan Doyle universe.
1: So, so Peter, what would you and James together think about? That um, anthology collection, Shadows Over Baker Street. I think it's fun. I think it's absolutely fun, and we can easily say that
3: that versions of Sherlock Holmes or Moriarty and all of those characters, and even some of the characters that I throw in, exist in the Lovecraft universe, but not the other way around. Right. The Lovecraft universe is not part of. Sherlock Holmes
0: canon. What do you think about the trend in in, in, in modern Lovecraftian um, stories of um, placing it kind of like the real world, where where you could like pick up any of Lovecraft's stories and stuff, but they were all based on true stories that people didn't know were real. I you know I've seen that done
3: in. You know, it kind of reminds me of, remember the old War of the Worlds television series?
0: Yes. Oh, yeah.
3: Yep. Would you really believe that 30 or 40 years after it happened, everyone would forget about it?
0: I've seen a lot of people try to um, come up with explanations for it, and... Admittedly even for for my horror crossover encyclopedia, trying to place War of the worlds into um the same world as other horror movies was was difficult, <laughs> and I really yeah. had to do a lot of tap dancing and like it, yeah. And
3: yeah, that's yeah as the much fun I as the... in, and this is why it's hard you know to say integrate world devastating events into a greater crossover timeline. And not think that things are going to be problematic. I mean, if Godzilla exists and King Kong exists in in your timeline, those are tough things to rectify. Yeah. Um. It, it's just, it's just difficult. In I get the idea that you want to shove everything together, but. Um, it doesn't always work. And it's, you know, it's kind of related to one of the fundamental things I try to do in my writing, is that when um, Chaosium comes up with their when, you, when you're in a, a, a book with Chaosium and Chaosium Adventures, mm-hmm. what you often see is that it's human beings versus the mythos. Right. But not all mythos creatures are created equal. And they're not always going to have the same goals and, and objectives. Yeah. And one of the things I think that in, in both the Weird Company and, and Reanimators is that the deep ones aren't exactly happy with the idea of Yad Satov coming back and taking over the world. These are are creatures that are pretty much just another species of intelligent a- a- life on this planet, if the laws of physics are suddenly upset, they're not going to be very happy. Right. So, you know, I was listening to you guys uh, talk about um, the Universal Monsters crossovers um, a couple weeks ago.
0: Oh, you're the listener.
3: You know, imagine, you know, Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, the mummy, versus Godzilla. Right. You you know, if Godzilla's coming to town, is Dracula your biggest fear anymore?
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
3: Dracula and Frankenstein the people you turn to for help.
0: Right. Right, your enemy's enemy is your friend.
3: That's the essence of of the weird company. If the shockoffs are free and gonna, you know, scour the earth, who comes to your rescue? I
0: I, I like that idea too, uh, because um, I like the idea that um, the people who you would consider to be the bad guys, um, you know, join together. To save the world because they love the world too. <laughs> they may have ulterior motives yeah. for why they love the world, and they're not necessarily the best <laughs> motives. But but it's still they have as much to lose, <laughs> you know. So they have to join right. join the side of the people that they'll later victimize maybe.
1: <laughs> well, they <laughs> well, it's want that to in, um,
3: Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, why would you want to save the galaxy? Because I'm one of the idiots that lived in it.
0: Right, yeah.
1: And you want to stay at the yeah. top of the food chain. You don't want Godzilla coming in and taking displacing you from there. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You, you, you set things
3: up very happily. Um, you'd like to st- things to stay that way.
0: So I haven't got a chance to read The Word Company yet, but I'm really excited to read it because, uh, well, I love team-up books anyways, but when there's a um, a unique twist like this, you know, characters that I hadn't seen, you know, wouldn't expect to team up. <laughs> that, that, right, right. Yeah, that's that. Well,
3: that. I, I, you know, I had never expected them to team up either until I found that little tiny bit of crossover potential. Right. And and then it was just sort of snowballed. And I, and I always loved *At the Mountains Madness* and who goes there? And wanted to, to somehow bridge the gap between the two.
2: And it gave me that perfect opportunity. Right. So, speaking as someone who hasn't quite gotten that far in the weird company yet, I'm like one or two hours in on the audiobook. Do you consider okay. the mech ready of who goes there to be Doc Savage? Since that's a pretty popular thing for people to do now,
3: I hate that. You heard it here first, people? <laughs> I you know it's uh, I I understand why it was done. Yes, he's a giant. He's a giant, and he's smart, and you know he has all those characteristics. Um, the problem I have is, is twofold. First, it forces you to put um who goes there in front of at the mountains of madness in the timeline. Mm. And that's where we uh, put it. Um, and to me, that doesn't make any a lot of sense. Um, it, it's actually in in uh, it's called the Second Magnetic Expedition, and or something on that order. Yeah, and If something you actually are like pay attention to at the Mountains of Madness, what you find out is that. One of the things they discover is this weak second magnetic pole, uh, which leads them on on the the quest for this, and ends up finding the city. Um, So, in my mind, it's uh, definitely set afterwards. It's an attempt by the author to say, "All right." After of Madness happened, we sent somebody else down to, to do more research, and while they didn't find this, they found all this horrible stuff. Um, the second problem I have is that if it's truly a military expedition, which it appears to be, the, the timeline for that, for me, doesn't work as before the Miskatonic event. So I have to put it behind it. And the third thing is that can't we just have somebody else who's just a really great character?
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Do all just, just because, You know, just because he has some similarities, can't he just be a standalone character?
0: To be fair to uh, Winscott Eckert's timeline, uh, it does center around Doc Savage as well as Tarzan. Yeah. (laughs) So
3: yeah, Yeah. and I I I like the idea, and it's but to me it just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, And to have, and it's not just that that McCready is is Doc Savage; it's that one of the other uh, 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 one of the other one of the professors that on the Miskatonic trip is uh, John Littlejohn, right?
0: Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And, you know, that's just, it's too much of a coincidence.
2: Yeah, as much as I love the joke that Lovecraft's writing is like Johnny's huge, massive Latinite word strings, it really right. doesn't work.
0: Yeah, now that yeah, part so was...
3: Far- I, I, re- I reject that and because I set who goes there after, Miskatonic, after the Miskatonic event that's the stance I'm taking.
0: Now Johnny's inclusion yeah. was from Farmer himself, right, Philip Jose Farmer?
3: Yeah, yeah that was that. his explanation yeah, for yeah.
2: why he didn't explain where Johnny was in the present. He's right. missing because right. of that. Right.
3: Yeah, and I just I just can't agree with it. Um, if you're going to make as many crossovers as possible, yes, fine, go for it. But the the way that the genres fell out. I really do believe that John W. Campbell wrote Who Goes There as a sequel,
4: mm-hmm.
3: or at least with At the Mountains of Madness in mind.
1: So, um, i like oh, I'm sorry.
0: No, go ahead, Chris.
1: Personally, I'd like to see McCready um, explained in the same way, let's say you could recognize, you can reconcile a character like Thunder Jim Wade with uh, Doc Savage, or Dark Ardan. You know, from the Shadow Man universe, there's you know, there's different char- different characters that resemble this, these that have all these similar attributes. What's the connection? I'd like to see that explored, but that's that would be going too off-topic here. But that's the way I see it, so bottom line, I could see McCready as a separate character, like Peter just said. Maybe okay. there's a connection. Yeah, that could
3: work. Yeah. I mean,
1: you could have that character you know, had his own series of
3: adventures that paralleled um, Doc
1: Savages. That would be fun. That'd be a lot of work.
0: Yeah, why
1: well, I may make, it make a be better good article good. to start with. I'll come right. up with something. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, so I have to ask, um, uh, at the Mountains of Madness, um, Guillermo del Toro's, been talking about that doing that for, for a long time um, is that something that excites you or frightens you
3: um uh, well if it happens I'd be thrilled because we would remarket market the weird company right um it would be a huge boon for that book um I think Guillermo Del Toro could do a good job um I've seen some buzz on the internet you know Tom Cruise was attached at one point whatever oh, no.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah um, well and, and then the let's um, include women in the party mm. um, I, I, it, it can be done I would like to see it handled properly Um, I just did a sequel to The Shadow Out of Time where I covered in detail what happened on the expedition, and I included some uh, minority characters and um, a a homosexual issue. And I I really had to do some work on it because the times were very different. In some ways, they were more accepting, and in other ways, they weren't. Mm. Um, wow. But it has to be handled properly in, in historical context. Right. If you're going to yeah. put a woman on an a, a icebreaker heading down to um, the Antarctic in the 1930s, you better have a good explanation for it. You just can't do it. Right. And if you need to, you know, her, you know, have her hidden as a man or some something like that or have her the best there is, um, I'd be all for it. I just want that historical perspective.
0: Right. It's going to make um, sense.
3: There was one book that I read not too long ago which introduced an African-American female character who was... In the 1920s, as an undergraduate at Miskatonic University on a jogging scholarship, on a running scholarship, dating a uh, white member of a fraternity and going out to various speakeasies and restaurants and, you know, as if there was no problem. And I would have liked to have seen the issue dealt with. I don't have a problem with the character existing. I have a problem with whitewashing everyone else's reaction to it.
1: Right. I think you also may be saying, Peter, that I've discussed before in my groups, you may have seen, since you're a member of some of them, the idea of when we write retro stories like written now, but take place in the past, which... All of your love, fiction does. We, you know, the idea of trying to make characters act the same way as they would now, but it, 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 when taken out of historical context, you know, it, right. I mean, now yes, nowadays we see no no problem with uh, with you know people of different races dating, and that's great. But if you if you put it in in the in the 1930s. But a lot of people might say, well, if these are good guys, we expect them to be as enlightened as people nowadays. No, there were good people back then who were prejudiced, because that type of prejudice was acceptable at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, yeah, I, there's this, a lot of, of
3: area to explore here. There's a lot of positions. But
1: I would, I would prefer to see it handled in historical context and addressed at least, Partially. Even at the risk, yeah, of making one of your protagonists maybe, quote-unquote, not likable by today's standards.
3: Right. Now, the funny thing is that... um, Well, (laughs) we'll get to that. Um, The funny thing is that, you know, I'm a big fan of... um, Oh, God. uh, There's a detective series that William Powell played in, not the thin Man.
2: Um, the Philo Vance?
3: Murder. What's that?
2: Was it the Philo Vance series? I'm trying to yes, remember. Philo I know. Vance okay. series,
3: yeah. And in the Philo Vance books and even in some of the movies, it's pretty clear that he's gay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's perfectly acceptable. Nobody says anything.
0: It's one. Um, it's one of those things okay. where they don't talk about it, but they all know. Right. Yeah.
3: But there are little little hints. Uh, I, I'm going to wear the. the I think it's the purple carnation, or a green carnation. It might be. Um,
2: yeah, it was green that, because that was. That a indicated squabble. that
3: you were. You were a homosexual. There was nothing wrong with it. We've we changed so much. In what what we find acceptable and what we find repugnant in in a, a century.
1: Which is why we can't always expect characters whose story took place in the 1930s to have exactly the same values as we do now. Right, right.
0: Right, just watch Looney Tunes cartoons, and
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's also an act of courage on your part as a writer, Peter, because a lot of people, a lot of writers would be worried, if we show it like it was, would they accuse us of having these prejudices?
3: Right. Um one of, one of the things I got to play with, uh, and I, I really have to thank Walt Lockhart for, for putting me onto this, is that in Reanimators I cover um, the character uh, that Lovecraft created, his, his boxer, the mm. Harlem Smoke, um, whose real name was Buck Robinson, uh, who's this you know seven-foot tall African-American, and Lovecraft describes him as, as uh, an ape-like thing.
4: Mm.
3: Um I have an opportunity to have Hartwell sit down and have a conversation with him, and his name is not Buck Robinson. It's James Buchanan Robinson, and James Buchanan the president was an abolitionist,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and a lot of a lot of um, African American people named their children James Buchanan, and got those kids got nicknamed Buck.
2: Right. Yeah, I really love that
3: part, and I find that that little bit of. History just really struck home to me how much we have to include that stuff. Otherwise, we forget it. I don't want. I don't want to whitewash our history. Forgive the, the pun. Right. I want to know. I want people <laughs> to know that we weren't always as clean as we'd like to think we were.
0: Right. And in, in, in some ways, it's disrespectful to the how we've where we've come if 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 we kind of erase our, our bad parts. Um, right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, just yeah. as much as people seem to want to erase the good parts of the past, too. Right. That's why we yeah. need accuracy. Right. right. Right.
3: All right. We We've killed that.
2: So, um,
0: actually, I'm looking at the time and, and – w- I can't believe it, but we're almost out of time. <laughs> oh gosh! Uh, yeah, it's it, it, we filled up the hour. Um, so uh, bef- before we end, though, I want to uh, make sure you get a chance to plug anything that we haven't discussed, or replug anything that we have discussed. Um, the
3: only thing I'm going I'm to plug here is that uh, it should be out in October, Did It or take a couple weeks or months. Uh, the new book will be Reanimatrix. Yes. Um, it is a uh, inspired by the, the book and film Laura. Oh. Which also served as inspiration to Twin Peaks.
4: Mm hmm.
3: And it is essentially the story of a detective, uh, Robert Peasley, uh, the son of Professor Peasley, who uh, is now a detective in Arkham, who catches a murder case of a beautiful young girl that he once knew. And move into her house to solve her, mister- her murder, her murder, and uh, falls in love with her memory. But oh. this is Arkham, right? And what is dead does not always stay dead.
0: Intriguing. I love that.
3: Yeah, I like the idea. Yeah. It's it's a very um, it's a very noir Lovecraftian
1: tale. Nice. I will pre-order.
0: <laughs> and um, uh, finally, where where can our listeners uh, follow you on social media?
3: Uh, I really I have a, a, a Twitter account, Pete Rollick. Um, I but I don't use it that often. When I have something important, I, I really don't find myself in a position to say important things in a uh, $144 uh, um, Right. But I'm pretty active on my Facebook page, and every Sunday night almost, you can catch me on the Lovecraft d uh, uh, public chat. And those are recorded and, and archived.
0: I'm and, really glad you brought it, that up.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, right. But I'm pretty easygoing. If you want to ask me a question, contact me on Facebook.
0: Awesome. Uh,
3: I'll be glad to... to to send your
0: message back or uh if it has to we will we'll email stuff and uh, or make a phone call. Awesome. Uh, so thank you for being with us and um I'm pleased to say that we're all um not insane or uh dead at the end of this Lovecraftian uh, discussion. <laughs> but the night's not over yet. Um so um, yeah, thank you for coming on. And uh, when Reanimatrix Re- comes comes out, you'll definitely have to come on again, um, so we can talk about that. Um,
3: oh yeah, lots of crossovers in reanimatrix.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a, it was a real pleasure. Um, so thank you again. And uh, we're gonna go to commercial, and when we come back, we're gonna do a quick wrap up. We'll be right back. Well, that's all the time we've got for tonight. Uh, Join us next week when we be talking with author Tim LeBond. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, Miskatonic University, and a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.